Today on Golden Girls Sports, we focus on the show's many spectacular sports metaphors. Marcus Allen. Mike Tyson. Extra innings. The tight end decoys, so it looks like we're running a draw play. Magic Johnson. Bobby Old. Tampa Bay Bucks. And they're off! The pig takes the lead. The chicken... The Golden Girls' fifth season opened with a two-part episode, Sick and Tired, which was written by series creator Susan Harris. Part one ran on September 23, 1989, and part two a week later on September 30th. Dorothy knows she's ill, but doctor after doctor refuses to treat her, unable to find anything physically wrong with her. Thanks to her friend and neighbor, Dr. Harry Weston, she finally sees a physician that puts a name to her affliction, chronic fatigue syndrome and she can finally get the treatment she needs to get back to feeling normal again. But not before telling one of those negligent doctors what an asshole he is. Sick and Tired was an important hour of television for a lot of people, most importantly Susan Harris. The once prolific writer had to curtail her work because she was constantly tired and also constantly going from doctor to doctor to figure out what was wrong with her. Prescriptions like dye your hair or take a Valium were not only unhelpful, but frustrating and demoralizing to both Harris and her husband, Golden Girls producer Paul Junger Witt. When Witt read an article in Rolling Stone about other women that had the same symptoms she had, Harris finally had a lead she could track down in order to start getting treatment. In the end, it turned out that Harris had an adrenal issue and not chronic fatigue syndrome. But by voicing her resentment of the doctors who ignored her, through the person of B. Arthur, Harris not only found peace of mind, but gave it to millions of women across the country. Quote, After this episode aired, the response was enormous. Women who had thought they were crazy and felt so alone now felt validated. The disease predominantly affects women, five to one. And then these women were so grateful that there was somebody out there like Dorothy who was saying the same things they were. That last monologue of Dorothy's, where she tells off the doctor in the restaurant, was very personal for me. I had to restrain myself and watch my language because I was a whole lot angrier than she was. And B delivered the monologue fabulously. End quote. While Dorothy goes on a quest to heal herself, Blanche goes on a different type of quest in Sick and Tired. She has decided to become a romance novelist because no one knows cheap, quickly completed sex better than she does. Oh, girls, it's going to be so exciting. I am going to make a fortune. And I won't even have to use my imagination. My life is a romance novel. Your life is a sports page. Sports metaphors are as much a part of the Golden Girls' DNA as very special episodes about weighty topics and savage put-downs. They were used frequently and ruthlessly throughout the show's seven seasons. And like every other sports reference we've seen and will see in this series, the girls didn't need the sports explained to them. They are as experienced in those topics as they are in life in general. Take this one from later in Season 5. In Twice in a Lifetime, written by Robert Bruce and Martin Weiss, an old bow of roses named Buzz Mueller rolls into town and makes her question her relationship with Miles. Blanche tries to sympathize, but um, it goes predictably wild. Rose, quite frankly, I don't get it. What is this hold that Buzz has over you? Oh, I know exactly what she's going through, Dorothy. First love can be very powerful. I felt the same way about Haywood Boyle, the star pitcher on our high school baseball team. Uh, An amazing athlete. That boy had exceptional control. (laughs) 
He was always up for extra innings. <laughs> and his delivery, oh, all I right, Blanche, enough. <laughs> yeah, we get it. <laughs> so what was he like in bed? With exceptional control and delivery, Haywood Boyle sounds an awful lot like Greg Maddox, although I don't know if the nerdy-looking ace was Blanche's type. Anyway, Buzz pushes hard for Rose to go to Europe with him and his band, but she realizes she made the right call breaking up with him 40 years ago, and she and Miles fall back into each other's arms. Buzz Mueller was played by Eddie Bracken, the longtime movie and stage actor who rose to fame thanks to two celebrated film collaborations with director Preston Sturgis. 1943's The Miracle of Morgan Creek, and 1944's Hail the Conquering Hero. Originally from Astoria, Queens, Bracken showed a talent for singing and acting as a child and attended the New York City Professional Children's School for Actors. He worked on stage throughout the 1930s and broke into the movies in 1940's Too Many Girls. Comedies were definitely his bag, and he co-starred in movies like Sweater Girl, Caught in the Draft alongside Bob Hope, and the star-started wartime musical extravaganza Star Spangled Rhythm. He moved into TV in the 50s in anthology series, but the stage remained his go-to workplace. Bracken had a knack for replacing lead actors in plays, taking over for Ray Walston in Damn Yankees and Art Carney in The Odd Couple being a couple of examples. Bracken was also a businessman, investing in companies throughout his life, none of which were as successful as his acting career. He popped up on various series of the 80s and 90s, like Amazing Stories, Black's Magic, and Empty Nest. While comedy remained his forte even late in his career, he did appear in two episodes of crime drama Wise Guy, where he played Father Patrick. Movie watchers may remember Bracken as amusement park boss Mr. Wally in National Lampoon's Vacation, or as Chicago Cubs owner Bob Carson in Rookie of the Year. His final role was in 2000, guest starring on quirky sitcom Ed. Two years later, at the age of 87, Eddie Bracken passed away at his home in New Jersey. Blanche was back with another sports and sex metaphor in season six's Zborn Again. The first Golden Girls script written by later Arrested Development creator Mitchell Hurwitz, Zborn Again centers around Dorothy and Stan improbably rekindling their relationship that everyone, including Dorothy, thought was long dead. Dorothy falls into bed with her ex-husband and it's a tough spot to be in, especially since the sex they've been having has been surprisingly good. That leads to a discussion about the best sex each of them ever had and Rose makes a terrible mistake. What was the best sex you ever had? Oh, way to go, Rose. <laughs> Look, Blanche, it's late. There's only one cheesecake left, so let's make menopause the cutoff point. Best sex. Oh, it's just so hard to rate these things. There's degree of difficulty, style points, choice of music. Did they land on their feet during the dismount? <laughs> Different people have different strengths. It's just impossible to tell, but anything over a nine is excellent. Over a nine? Poets, Rose, poets. Scoring in gymnastics has changed since the Golden Girls, and these days consists of two separate parts. A D score, based on the actual routine, can be awarded a maximum of seven points. An E-score, which rates the execution of the routine, can be rated up to 10. 
The new system makes actual perfection harder to achieve, even for standouts like Simone Biles and Gabby Douglas. And it also makes for scores that are less eye-catching for headlines and casual viewers. No one will ever forget Nadia Comaneci's perfect tens in the 1976 Summer Games in Montreal. And the phrase just sort of rolls off the tongue, like a Hail Mary pass from Doug Flutie or a walk-off home run by Joe Carter or a hat-trick by Mike Bossy. Biles might blow away the competition with a combined 16.3 score, but it just doesn't have the same ring to it that a 10 does. Speaking of blowing away the competition, how about doing it with tennis balls fired from a high-powered air cannon? If you grew up in the 1990s, chances are you saw contestants pelted with those tennis balls, encased in giant hamster balls, beaten with massive Q-tips while standing on pillars, dragged to the ground in a bizarre combination of football and basketball, or experiencing all kinds of crazy stuff thanks to American Gladiators, one of the most you-had-to-be-there shows of all time. It came up on the Golden Girls Season 7 premiere, Hey, Look Me Over, also written by Hurwitz. Rose finds an old camera, and the pictures in it seem to show her late husband Charlie in bed with Blanche. Naturally, Rose is extremely upset. So upset that she can't even think up her own insults. So she calls in Dorothy from the bullpen. Blanche, forget about your hair. That is Rose's husband with you. Charlie? No, I never met Charlie. You not only met him, you slept with him, just like you sleep with everybody. I most certainly do not. Oh, come on, Blanche. You've landed on your back more than... more than... Hmm. The American Gladiators. <laughs> it turns out the photos were just double exposures, with Blanche's racing new pictures being taken on top of Rose's old pictures. Kids, ask your parents about the days when cameras needed film. You should also ask them about American Gladiators. The brainchild of Elvis impersonator Johnny Ferraro and his partner Dan Carr, the idea for the show started as an athletic competition in a high school gym in Pennsylvania. After passing tapes around and making refinements, it made it to syndication and ran for seven seasons from 1989 to 1996. Physically fit but ostensibly normal competitors would face off against the colorful cast of gladiators dressed in superhero leotards with names like Nitro, Gemini, Laser, Zap, and Blaze in events with names like The Assault, Atlasphere, Powerball, Joust, The Human Cannonball, Breakthrough and Conquer, and The Fearsome Final Eliminator. The stars of the show, aka The Gladiators, came from diverse backgrounds themselves. Some had played in the NFL, some were actors, some were decorated college athletes, and one was a stripper. But inside Gladiator Stadium, they were superstars. They didn't always win, but they looked incredibly cool. And with announcer Mike Adamley and a cast of former football stars giving the whole show a weight and legitimacy that made it feel like the big time, American Gladiators was a phenomenon. Toys, video games, a national tour, and a theme song from Rocky composer Bill Conti that everybody knew. It had it all. From Universal Studios Hollywood. This is American Gladiators. Selected from a nationwide search, 22 men and women have come to Hollywood to challenge our force of American Gladiators for a single honor to become American Gladiators champion. The Gladiators rotated in and out, either because they were knocked out by gruesome injuries or left for other better paying jobs. There was some steroid use and inter-gladiator sex going on behind the scenes, and the stars remain close to this day, 
having all experienced an incredibly unique job that only they could possibly understand. But like everything else, eventually the public grew bored with the same events and format, and the show ended after 137 episodes. Ferraro still owns the rights and has tried to bring it back a number of times. A 2008 reboot hosted by Hulk Hogan and Layla Ali only lasted one season. The American Gladiators tradition is carried on a little bit today by shows like Ninja Warrior, American Ninja Warrior, and Wipeout, but they're not the same. Maybe we will see a proper American Gladiators return one day. I watched American Gladiators regularly during its run, and the thing I remember the most about it was how cooperative it was. There seemed to be relatively little trash talk or sniping between combatants, and if there was, it was more goofy than anything. The Gladiators whose characters were supposed to be conceited assholes didn't really seem like conceited assholes. And even the sex appeal, whether it was hetero or homoerotic, felt sort of wholesome. Everyone just looked like they were having a good time and trying to win, even if it meant taking a tennis ball in the ribs from an air cannon perched 80 feet away. I guess it was a different time back then. In season six's Girls Just Want to Have Fun Before They Die, Sophia wishes it was a different time, too. A time in which she could tell a man that she loved him. Written by Gail Parent and Jim Vallely, the episode finds Sophia dating a man she's madly in love with, but she's not quite sure how to reel him in. So she goes to an expert for help. Sophia, I'll bet with a few tips from me, you can have this guy Tony in bed in no time. That's good because that's exactly how much time we have. No, my mother does not do that. Yes, I do. I've just been in dry dock. <laughs> now. I'm suited up, coach. Put me back in the game. Okay, but you have to listen to everything I say. When I say jump, you say on who. Transformed from, quote, an 80-year-old woman to a 60-year-old drag queen, Sophia tells her boyfriend Tony that she loves him, and he responds with something other than I love you back. This is a problem, and as always, I blame the coach. Tony was played by Cesar Romero, who is best remembered as either a classic Latin lover on the big screen or a clown prince of crime on the small screen. Born in New York and raised in Bradley Beach, New Jersey, Romero was the son of a Spanish father and a Cuban mother who was either the daughter or goddaughter of famous Cuban writer Jose Marti. Romero started out as a dancer on stage before moving into acting. Despite being from this continent, his tall, strong figure and striking exotic looks made him Hollywood's go-to Latin star for nearly 20 years in everything from comedies to musicals to westerns to gangster pictures. But he was never the star or the hero, always a gigolo or a boyfriend or a villain or a historical figure. Romero knew the roles were mainly a product of his given name and dark features, but hey, they kept him working. Romero also played antagonists in The Thin Man and the original Ocean's Eleven, and Doc Holliday in the Wyatt Earp movie, Frontier Marshal. But in 1966, Romero traded in his flirting for maniacal laughter on a campy kids show. As the Joker, he was one of Batman's best remembered and most recurring villains, capturing the dynamic duo in 22 episodes over three seasons, and their 1967 cash-in feature film. Famously, Romero refused to shave off his signature mustache for the role, so the Joker's white makeup was caked on right over it. In the recent Batman 66 digital comic, which continues in the style of the show, artists have kept the tradition alive by drawing the whiskers in whenever the Joker would appear in a story. After Batman ended in 1968, 
Romero never stopped working straight on through the 1990s. He stayed mostly on TV, appearing in a wide array of sitcoms, variety shows, cop shows, and a 51-episode stint on Falcon Crest when he was in his 80s. On January 1st, 1994, Cesar Romero died from complications of a blood clot. He was 86 years old. He never married and was a frequent Hollywood partygoer throughout his life. Two years after his death, interviews with Romero were published in the book Hollywood Gaze by author Bose Hadley, in which he spoke openly about his homosexuality for the first time, including his devotion to star Tyrone Power. Sadly, Romero chose to stay in the closet from the public for his entire life, possibly out of fear of homophobia or, I assume, losing work by not being able to play the same amorous roles he was always known for. That is an incredibly sad postscript to one of the longest, most consistent, and most interesting careers of any actor in Hollywood. Knowing he was gay certainly wouldn't have made his Joker any less fun. In fact, it probably would have made his performance in that role even more iconic than it already is. Later in Season 6, we have Miles to Go, written by Don Siegel and Jerry Prezigian and directed by Matthew Diamond. Rose is shocked to learn that her longtime boyfriend Miles isn't who he says he is. He's actually been living in the Witness Protection Program, and he's actually an accountant from Chicago that turns state's evidence on some mobsters he did work for. The girls are even more shocked when they find out that the mob knows where Miles is and he needs to relocate again. Sophia, in particular, isn't keeping a calm head about this. Darling, we heard. Rose, it's awful. Oh, no. Look, we don't have much time. Oh, I'm so sorry about this, Miles. Can we get this guy out of here? I don't want to be killed at my age. That would be like getting tackled on the one-yard line. <laughs> Miles and Rose end up breaking up. But, spoiler alert, in a later episode, he sneaks out of the program and comes to see Rose while still wearing his assigned disguise of an Amish plank maker. Miles to Go was apparently a pretty divisive episode among Golden Girls writers, as are a lot of the show's later episodes. The plot started getting pretty outlandish in seasons 6 and 7, and having mild-mannered Miles turn out to be an on-the-run mob informant is right up there. Don Siegel saw the episode as a win for a certain clique in the writer's room that preferred more outlandish material. Writer-producer Richard Vassey blamed his writing partner Tracy Gamble for the idea, and was kind of shocked it actually made it to air. Gamble liked that the story was later bookended with an even more crazy episode named Witness later on in the same season. Harold Gould, who played Miles over the show's entire run, said he found the storyline extreme, but also having the character duck back into the Witness Protection Program allowed him to work on other projects. And Betty White didn't even know the Witness Protection Program was even a thing before she read the script. For Susan Harris, who had largely stepped away from the show by then due to exhaustion and having a family to raise, the change in the show's tone marked a pivot point from what it was about originally. Quote, There was a period when I saw a few shows, and I told Paul I thought it had lost its touch with reality. It got silly. I don't know if the audience felt that way, but for me, it jumped my personal shark, which was keeping it real. Keeping the women real, not joke machines. End quote. To be honest, Miles to Go is one of my least favorite episodes. I don't mind the absurdity, but I just find the storyline a little hard to follow. Some episodes in the show's final season, particularly the two-part A Midwinter Night's Dream, a Shakespeare parody in which Dorothy and Miles accidentally kiss, seem to be even less believable. I agree with Harris that the more grounded storylines are the best ones, and they're really what make the Golden Girls so timeless. One of those episodes is Job Hunting, the season one episode we talked about in episode 17 of this podcast. 
Rose loses her job at the Grief Counseling Center and needs to find a new gig. In the meantime, she's treating people from home, something she probably should have cleared with Dorothy and Blanche first. I hate phone calls in the middle of the night. Now I'll never get back to sleep. I'm as jumpy as a virgin at a prison rodeo. Well, that's pretty jumpy. The rodeo can trace its history back to the Spanish vaqueros of the 18th century, who had to rope, ride, break, herd, and otherwise wrestle cattle on ranches across the West. Americans moving westward copied those techniques in the lifestyle and rebranded, pun intended, themselves as cowboys. Things were fine for a long time, but as the need for cattle drives dried up with the advent of the railroad, so did the jobs for cowboys. Fortunately, Wild West shows were gaining in popularity, which let cowboys show off the skills they had previously used in informal competitions on the ranches. Eventually, the Wild West shows would decline as well. But producers found that the isolated cowboy competitions were a cheaper alternative that they could still sell. Prescott, Arizona is sometimes credited as the birthplace of the modern rodeo. On July 4, 1988, the city held its first rodeo and it had formalized rules, prizes, and ticket sales that would be replicated by similar competitions, first across the West and then everywhere. Today, groups like the Professional Rodeo Cowboys Association and Professional Bull Riders organize and regulate events and members across the U.S., as do a number of smaller bodies from more niche branches of the rodeo world. Prison rodeos aren't as common as they once were, if they ever were that common to begin with. And the only one left is the most famous of all, the Angola Prison Rodeo in Louisiana has taken place every October and for one weekend in April for over 50 years. Untrained prisoners can try their luck in the saddle and earn a little cash. The ones with clean records can have a chance to sell products they've made inside to customers. Meanwhile, the federal penitentiary raises upwards of $80,000 a day, which covers the cost of programs and clubs they use to reintegrate nonviolent offenders back into society. That's the rosy view. The less rosy one says that the extremely low wages for extremely dangerous work make the prison rodeo essentially a modern-day Roman Colosseum, or that the event can be a dangerous one for visitors, as evidenced by a reported sexual assault in 2017, or that maybe sponsors like Coca-Cola shouldn't be involved at all in a place known as America's bloodiest prison. Like the Wild West shows of old, prison rodeos are a dying breed. Maybe they too will one day be replaced by a more focused, better regulated version of the same program. Let's finish with a final sports metaphor on another episode we've talked about before, Season 5's All Bets Are Off. We spoke at length about this show in Episodes 13 and 14 of this podcast, as it's the one where Dorothy's addiction to gambling returns after she accompanies Rose to the racetrack. Before they go, Blanche offers some advice about picking up men around the stables. Well, Dorothy, you go. You can relax and take your mind off your job interview tomorrow afternoon. Oh, all right. Oh, good. I, uh, I would lend you my pass to the jockey's lounge, but you don't want to date a jockey. The sex is over too fast, and afterwards, the only nice thing they have to say to you is, good girl, good girl. Later, Sophia catches Dorothy checking out a racing form. She colorfully explains how she knew her daughter was withholding information from her. So you're studying for your interview. Uh-huh. I know it's a lot of added responsibility, but I really want this job. 
Then why are you reading the racing form? The racing form? Why would you think I'm reading the racing form? You can't lie to your mother. Mothers always know when you lie. Don't you think I knew what your brother Phil was doing in the bathroom when he said he was oiling his baseball glove? <laughs> He was working on his simplicity patterns. Simplicity patterns are those paper guides that you can get in a book and use to sew your own clothes at home. I didn't know they were called that, but I remember my mom using them when I was younger. They've been around since the 1920s. Sadly, we never got to see what old Phil cooked up with his needle and thread, but I'm sure it was great. The Golden Girls was nominated six times for Outstanding Comedy Series at the Primetime Emmys, winning the award in 1986. Barry Fanaro and Mort Nathan won the Emmy for Outstanding Writing for a Comedy Series that same year, and the show earned an additional nomination in that category for Susan Harris's pilot script. The series won three straight Golden Globes for Best Comedy Series and was nominated in the category every year it was on the air. It was also nominated for five Writers Guild of America awards, with Fanaro and Nathan winning there too. The point is, the writing on the show was uniformly outstanding for its entire run. The lines I highlighted here are a very small and very focused group of examples. Some of them are among the funniest lines the show ever had and are just throwaways. I'm as guilty as anyone of overusing sports metaphors for everything, as most sports fans probably are. It might be the only thing that unites all of us, no matter what sport we're into. Once you find yourself so into a sport that you think about it all the time, it eventually becomes the lens by which you filter the world. And sometimes the best way you can think of to explain something to someone is to use sports, even if they have no idea what you're talking about. I don't think I've ever been able to slide American Gladiators into too many conversations, but I will keep trying. Next time on Golden Girl Sports, we'll check in on today's action with the infamous Jimmy the Greek. Golden Girls Sports is written, produced, and narrated by Dan Saracini. The theme is Golden Sunrise, instrumental version, by Josh Woodward, and is available at freemusicarchive.org. Visit goldengirlsportspodcast.com for show notes and references, and follow us on Twitter at Golden Girls SP. Thanks for listening.